I have to admit right up front, I stole my title from Mark Dever. The title of my message is The Mark of a Healthy Church. I don't have time to deal with nine marks, so I'm narrowing it down to one. And you know, one of the most interesting discussions that came out of the Protestant Reformation started with the question, what are the marks of a true church? What distinguishes a legitimate church from a generic gathering of believers? What is the essential difference between a true church and a company of hypocrites who are just playing at religion? Prior to the Reformation, of course, that question hardly ever came up because most most church members and church leaders believed that the validity and the identity of the one true church was tied to an unbroken succession of bishops. And in the minds of most people, the church was an earthly institution. It was defined by a human hierarchy. It was perpetuated by apostolic succession. And even if that institution was morally and doctrinally corrupt, the question of whether it was really a true church hardly ever entered people's minds. I'm going to move this. What they did debate was, you know, whether the true church had its headquarters in Rome or Constantinople. If you lived in the West, the church was the Roman church, the Catholic church, and the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, was its head. And if you lived in Greece or further east, the Eastern Orthodox Church was your church, and the patriarch of Constantinople held the highest authority in that organization. And so you had these two large ecclesiastical syndicates, both claiming to be the one true church, and both of them staked that claim primarily on the lines of apostolic succession rather than on the plea that they were faithful to Scripture or the teaching of Christ or the preservation and proclamation of the gospel. And in fact, and in practice, neither Rome nor Constantinople had really maintained fidelity to Christ and the gospel. They both had buried the truth of Scripture under mountains of man-made rituals and customs and folklore and idolatry and extra-biblical rules, monastic routines, sacerdotal doctrines, ecclesiastical canons, and, you know, various strictures against foods and marriage, which are precisely the tokens of extra-biblical self-made religion and asceticism that the Apostle Paul describes in 1 Timothy 4.3 and Colossians 2, verses 20 and tw- through 22. Medieval Christianity had become a religion full of regulations telling people, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And all these rules were based on human precepts and teachings, just as Paul warns against in Colossians 2. Like the Pharisees, they had made the Word of God void by their tradition. And that's why the Protestant Reformation was necessary, to recover the simplicity of the gospel after it had been buried under this massive landfill of ecclesiastical traditions. But until the Protestant Reformation was already underway, almost no one ever thought to ask, does this colossal confederation of priests and bishops still constitute the true church of Jesus Christ. And when Luther first nailed his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg's castle church, that was a Catholic church. In Germany at the time, there was practically no other kind of church. And at the start, Luther himself had no thought of pulling away from Rome. In those days, both Catholicity and unity were defined by the Church of Rome. Catholic bishops taught, and most people believed that to be outside the papal system was to be outside the church and therefore alienated from Christ. And furthermore, in that massive mess that the Holy See oversaw, to question the authority of Rome was the one heresy that was both intolerable and unpardonable. So, The reformers were quickly excommunicated, and they were written off as cultists and apostates. And in the providence of God, that actually gave them more freedom than ever to examine the Scriptures like true Bereans, without looking through the lens of papal traditions. And they soon realized that by a purely biblical standard, the Pope was Antichrist. Not necessarily the Antichrist, but 
the whole priestly system was certainly at odds with the clear teaching of Christ who had said, call no man on earth your father, for you have one father who's in heaven. And he said, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. And no one had exalted himself more than the Pope. He had audaciously set himself up as the vicar of Christ. In the words of 2 Thessalonians 2.4, he had taken his seat in the temple of God, in effect proclaiming himself to be God, Antichrist. And as the Reformation spread from Germany and Switzerland to England and Scotland, churches that no longer swore loyalty to the Pope faced a crucial question. Now that these congregations were outside the Catholic communion, were they even true churches? And every one of the magisterial reformers had to face and contemplate the question, what are the marks of a true church? And they gave very clear answers. As you know, because we just celebrated the 500th anniversary, Luther's 95 theses were posted in 1517. Thirteen years later, Philip Melanchthon published the Augsburg Confession. That's a short doctrinal statement of 28 articles that constitute the definitive Lutheran statement of faith. And in it, he said the true church of Jesus Christ is distinguished by two things. And this is from Article 7 of the Augsburg Confession. Quote, the church is the congregation of saints in which the gospel is rightly taught and the sacraments are rightly administered. And to the true unity of the church, it is enough to agree concerning the doctrine of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. The Scottish Confession of Faith was drafted 30 years after that in 1560 by John Knox and five other Protestant ministers in Scotland. They said there are three identifying marks of a true kirk. They added church discipline to the Lutheran list. In fact, you'll find this in chapter 18 of the Scottish Confession. Quote, the notes of the true kirk of God, we believe, confess and avow to be, first, the true preaching of the word of God, secondly, the right administration of the sacraments, and last, ecclesiastical discipline rightly administered. The Belgic Confession famously lists those same three marks. Article 29 of the Belgic Confession is titled, The Marks of a True Church. And it says this, the true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. It makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. And it practices church discipline for the correcting of faults. The Anglican Church's 39 Articles of Religion gave the same two marks as the Lutherans. They said the visible church of Christ is a congregation of faithful men in which the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments are duly Administers, administered. Uh, Calvin's Institutes, Book 4, agreed with that. Calvin said the symbols by which the church is discerned are the preaching of the word and the observance of the sacraments. So you see, there's basic agreement there. Calvin actually went further in one place in his letter to Cardinal Sadoleto. He, he gave those same three marks as the Scots reformers. And he said this, quote, there are three things on which the safety of the church is founded. Doctrine, discipline, and the sacraments. And then he suggests, in that context, a fourth, quote, ceremonies by which to exercise the people in offices of piety. And I presume what he has in mind as that fourth mark is the formal ordination of church officers. But the fact is, the Reformed consensus on this has been remarkably consistent, generally, that there are three marks of the true church, the gospel, the sacraments, and church discipline. And if you think about it, the principle of church discipline is necessarily contained in the, the, the observance of the Lord's Supper if it's properly observed. And so the difference between those who see two marks and three marks is really negligible. On the other hand, since church discipline is so rarely practiced nowadays, I think it's helpful to give all three distinguishing marks of a true New Testament church. The pure preaching of the Word, the lawful administration of the sacraments, and the faithful practice of church discipline. That was standard Reformed orthodoxy until Mark Dever came along and named nine marks. 
And if you haven't read his book on the subject, you should. I read the original at least a decade ago, and I recently reread the book in its third edition, which has added a ton of really helpful material. It's a great book. Uh, but I, I'm not going to go over Mark Dever's nine marks, except to say that I completely agree with everything he says in that book. It is a superb book, and if you haven't read it, shame on you. But if you were to ask me to sum up the marks of a healthy church in as few words as possible, I'd give you just one mark, one indication that you have a true and healthy church, and it is an infallible sign. It's also something that you won't find explicitly named in any of those other lists, but I want to show it to you in Scripture from Revelation chapter 2. And so we'll look at the first seven verses of this chapter, Revelation 2. I love the sound of an auditorium full of pastors turning in their Bibles. And it's even better when you're carrying those 12-pound Bibles. <laughs> James White wrote me a note this morning, and, and he referred to it as an assault Bible. <laughs> I love that. So you have your assault Bibles. Anyway, while you're looking at this... Here is what, we'll come back and look at all these verses, but I just want to point out what I would name as the one infallible mark of a true and healthy church. It's love for Christ. This is the first and most essential element of necessary piety and practice for any church that wants to remain thriving and healthy. And in fact, if you have a church that is distinguished by genuine love for the true Christ, you have a great church regardless of the size of your congregation. Now, sadly, by the end of the first century, that could not be said about the church at Ephesus. Jesus chides them here in verse 4 with words that are shocking. He says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Think about this. This is a celebrated church of renown and far-reaching influence, but Christ rebukes them because he says they have relinquished their love for him. In verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In other words, he says, if they don't repent and retrieve that love, he will unchurch them. He'll remove their lampstand. Despite all the things they were doing right, he was going to disfellowship them if they didn't repent of this one thing. So a congregation can have all the standard marks of a true church and still be rejected by Christ if they don't love him. And that's why I say this is the mark of a true and healthy church. And by the way, there's no question what he means when he speaks of the love they had at first. This is love for Christ himself. That's the only thing that expression could possibly mean. Love for Christ, think about it, it's implicit in the first and great commandment. So this is the starting point of all true religion. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And Christ, of course, is God incarnate. So our earnest, all-consuming, zealous love for Him is clearly mandated by the first of all the commandments, the greatest of all the commandments. Love for Christ is also the very essence of saving faith. Genuine Christians are defined by their love for Christ. Or to say it another way, love for Christ is what separates believers, true believers, from unbelievers. 1 Peter 1, verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. And 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Again, love for Christ is the very essence of of saving faith. If we understood that, it would resolve a host of doctrinal problems. This, in my view, in a single sentence, is the solution to the whole lordship controversy. Love for Christ is the essence of saving faith. That's the love the Ephesians had when they were first converted. And so keep that in your mind. It's the key verse in our study. We're going to take a more expansive look at those seven verses in this chapter, the first seven verses. But first, I want to sort of walk you through the larger context. And so be ready to turn some pages. You can put your Bible ribbon 
here in Revelation 2. And I promise you, we will come back to this page. But first, let's try to get a bigger picture of what's going on here. Revelation 2 and 3, those two chapters, of course, consist of seven short letters from Christ dictated by him to be sent to a circuit of churches in Asia Minor at the end of the first century. Only two of those seven churches were healthy, faithful churches. There was the persecuted church at Smyrna and the persevering church at Philadelphia. And for those two churches, and only those two churches, Christ had nothing but words of approval and praise, nothing negative to say about them. But the rest of the churches, all five other ones in this section of Scripture, were in various stages of decline and defection, marked by things like apathy and compromise and corruption and worldliness and a a lack of corporate discipline. One church, Sardis was already totally dead, and another one, Laodicea, was just a lukewarm corpse of what it had once been. The remaining three churches in that list were on the downgrade and sinking fast. And aside from Christ's words in those two chapters of Revelation, Scripture doesn't tell us much about these churches. It says very little about most of them. But the one church whose history is pretty thoroughly covered in the New Testament is the church at Ephesus. And it's the first one Christ writes to. This was one of the, maybe the most important church in the whole New Testament, with a rich history and an amazing legacy. This was the largest and best known of all these seven churches. It was actually the mother church to most of the others. And it was also geographically the closest to Patmos. So it was the first one on the mail route that connected these seven cities. The church of Ephesus was the fruit of Paul's missionary labors. And Timothy had pastored there after Paul moved on. Apollos was there for a while. The Apostle John had also served a celebrated stint as their pastor in his advanced years, just before he was sent into exile at Patmos. And so this was a church that enjoyed every conceivable advantage of apostolic influence, good teaching, prosperous growth. They had had it all. It was perhaps the most privileged church in the apostolic age. It's the one everyone else wanted to be like. The Apostle Paul's association with Ephesus is an interesting New Testament theme. Paul's first visit to Ephesus was very short. It was literally the last stop on his second missionary journey. That second church-planting exposition of Paul's took him as far west as Corinth, you know, where Paul planted the church of the Corinthians and and remained with them as their founding pastor for 18 months. But when he left Corinth, he was headed back to Jerusalem. But on the way from Corinth to Jerusalem, his ship made port very briefly at Ephesus, just long enough for Paul to visit the synagogue there and start laying the foundation for gospel ministry in that city. Acts 18. In fact, turn there and let's look at this. Acts 18. And here's the background. Paul is on his way from Corinth. He's planning to sail to Caesarea, which is the port closest to Jerusalem, because he has to go to Jerusalem. Acts 18, 19. And they came to Ephesus, and Paul left them, that is Priscilla and Aquila. He left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So he's in Ephesus on apparently on the Sabbath, and as is, is his custom... He visits the synagogue in order to take the gospel message first to his Jewish brethren. And and there he meets with an uncharacteristically receptive audience. Verse 20, they asked him to stay for a longer period. But Paul's response to that is also uncharacteristic and a little bit surprising. He declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Now, It is not at all like Paul to walk away from an open door like that. But the facts we glean from the subtext here are are fascinating. Look at the end of verse 18. At Sancria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. So Paul had apparently taken a Nazarite vow, possibly, I think, as a way of uh, expressing his gratitude to God for the success of planting the Corinthian church. He's leaving Corinth, takes this vow. Sancria is the port city that's just east of of Corinth. If you're going from Corinth to Jerusalem, you're going to board your ship at Sancria. So 
while he's in Sankria, the time frame of his vow is complete, and so he cuts his hair. That's what the Old Testament prescribed. In fact, listen to the Old Testament prescription of a Nazarite vow in Numbers 6.18. It says that when the time of the vow was finished, the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire that is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. Now, that would be where? In Jerusalem. And rabbinical tradition in Paul's time said that if you lived in some remote part of the world and you took a vow, you had 30 days from the time you cut your hair to get to Jerusalem and offer your hair from your consecrated head on the altar at the temple. So Paul has a shaved head, Austin, and, and he's headed back to Jerusalem to give the, his hair on the, on the altar there at the temple. He's under time constraints. From the time he cuts his hair in Sancria, he's got 30 days to get to Jerusalem, and that means he cannot tarry at Ephesus. But Ephesus represented a wide-open door for the gospel, so he leaves Aquila and Priscilla there, which is a genius strategical move, because their ministry, the real giftedness of Priscilla and Aquila, was ministry on a small scale with individuals. One of the individuals they ministered to was Apollos. Acts 18.24 says that Apollos showed up in Ephesus, and under the tutelage of Priscilla and Aquila, he quickly developed into a mighty teacher and defender of the faith. Apollos would become, of course, a, a companion and a fellow worker with Paul, both here in Ephesus and in Corinth. And apparently, Priscilla and Aquila excelled in dealing with individuals like that. And so they stayed in, in Ephesus doing personal evangelism. And they probably founded and hosted the Ephesian church in its embryonic form in their home because when Paul later writes from Ephesus to the Corinthian church, he makes reference in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 19 to Aquila and Prissa together with the church in their house. But it seems the church at Ephesus began very slowly. You know that Ephesus was home to the temple of Diana, and Diana worship was not only the dominant religion, it was a major point of civic pride. And so it seems like the gospel ministry of Aquila and Priscilla started slowly, but it was making headway, but very slowly against the city's devotion to Diana. And so the church in Ephesus didn't really seem to thrive until Paul returned on his third missionary journey. The interval between the second and third missionary journeys was apparently very brief. Luke covers it in just two verses, Acts 18, verses 22 and 23. When he had landed at Caesarea, this is taking his hair to Jerusalem, he went up and greeted the church. That would be the church at Jerusalem, and that's why Luke says he went up. And then from Jerusalem, after the ceremony that was required to complete his oath, he went down to Antioch, verse 23. After spending some time there in Antioch, he departed. Luke's not specific, so we don't know how much time he spent in Antioch. It just doesn't say, but it may have been close to a year. My MacArthur Study Bible says possibly from the summer of A.D. 52 to the spring of A.D. 53. And so we're going to go with that, okay? And then he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. In other words, following up on the churches that he had already planted. But Paul was, of course, eager to get back to Ephesus and to fulfill the promise he made in Acts 18.21 when he said to them, I will return to you if God wills. And Acts 19 describes what happened. Verse 1, notice Apollos has already moved on to Corinth, and he's now ministering in that church there. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country. In other words, he's not coming by boat this time. And he came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Still sounds, doesn't it, like believers in Ephesus were fairly rare. He doesn't come to the church. He encounters some disciples. And these guys that Paul found were former disciples of John the Baptist, about 12 men in all, Scripture says. And they immediately embraced a fuller understanding of the gospel. They were baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And Paul then revisited that synagogue, that same one mentioned in Acts 18, 19, where, you remember, the people seemed so open. Acts 19, verse 8. And for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them. In other words, people in that synagogue got up and started talking against Paul, and it was going to split the group. So he withdraws, and he took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And also there's an outpouring of miracles associated with Paul's ministry there. Verse 11, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Incidentally, that stint in... Ephesus lasted at least two years. That's a longer time than Paul had spent at Corinth. When you realize Acts 19 covers more than two years' time, you gain a new appreciation for Luke's ability to condense a whole lot of history in just a few words. He's certainly better at that than I am. Those were a couple of tough years, though, for Paul. His experience in Ephesus starts with this outpouring of miracles. It's punctuated by hardship and opposition, and it ends with a riot. But the church there evidently grew and flourished under Paul's leadership. And by the time Paul moves on from Ephesus, the church has elders. It's fully established. The church at Ephesus would continue to thrive under the care of those elders. 1 Corinthians 16 verses 8 through 10 tells us that when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Timothy was in Ephesus with Paul, so the Ephesians knew Timothy well. And 1 Timothy 1, verse 3 indicates that at some point, Timothy was sent back to Ephesus to oversee that church there as sort of their senior pastor. The earliest church historians say Timothy served as pastor of that church for many years. Paul's final face-to-face contact with the Ephesian church occurred at the end of his third missionary journey. After leaving Ephesus, his travels had taken him to Troas and Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Corinth, and then back in the direction of Ephesus. But this time he has to get back to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost. He's always in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. So he decides not to stop at Ephesus, and instead he summons the elders of the Ephesian church to Miletus for a farewell meeting with them. He knows he's never going to return to Ephesus again. He tells these elders in Acts 20, verse 25, Behold, I know that none of you among you whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. You won't see my face again. And because of his prophetic gifting, Paul knew Hard times lay ahead for Ephesus, so his farewell speech to them includes this famous warning, Acts 20, 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and listen to this, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them, and therefore, be alert, Paul says. So some of the Ephesian elders, these men themselves would pose a threat to the soundness and health of that church. Keep that warning in mind because it's going to come up again. By the way, that plea for the Ephesian elders to be on guard dovetails perfectly with the many urgent words of caution Paul gave Timothy. Remember, Timothy was one of the leading elders in Ephesus, and Paul's epistles to Timothy are full of admonitions telling Timothy to be on guard. Difficult times are coming. And as we're going to see in Revelation 2, difficult times did come. According to church tradition, Timothy was martyred in Ephesus around A.D. 80 when he... Uh, it's a funny story, or it's a, it, it is kind of funny. It's funny to picture. He encounters this procession of Diana worshipers in a state of drunken, lewd, pagan revelry, and Timothy stands in front of them in the road and starts preaching the gospel to them. And they beat him, and they dragged him behind the procession and then stoned him to death, and he is reportedly buried there in Ephesus. Sometime after Timothy's death, the apostle John became senior pastor in Ephesus. You remember that from the cross, 
Jesus committed to John the care of his mother, Mary. And so here's an interesting fact. You know that in, in 1950, the Catholic Church dogmatically defined a doctrine known as the Assumption of Mary, the belief that Mary was taken into heaven. But someone before someone thought up that tradition, the older Catholic tradition was that John took Mary to Ephesus when he went there to be their pastor, and she died of old age in Ephesus. And there is, in fact, to this day, a holy site there marking the tomb of the Virgin Mary, and it is still recognized as a sacred place by the Eastern Orthodox Church. Irenaeus was a theologian who lived in the second century and, you know, had a fairly close connection back through a couple of generations with the Apostle John. Irenaeus personally knew Polycarp, who was a close disciple of the Apostle John. And so Irenaeus was just one degree of separation removed from the Apostle. He recorded this story about John, the Apostle, in Ephesus, that he says Polycarp told him, it goes like this, John goes in to bathe at the baths in Ephesus, and when he sees the famous Gnostic heretic Serenthus there, and he sees that he's inside, he hurries away without bathing, saying, let's flee in case this bathhouse falls down because this enemy of the truth is there. I love that story about John. But anyway, that's the backstory on the church at Ephesus. It was founded at the very earliest, about A.D. 52. This letter from Christ came to them in the last decade of the first century, around A.D. 96 or thereabout. That means that Within 45 years of its founding, this highly privileged church was in a serious enough state of decline to warrant this stinging rebuke from Christ. And that's more common than you might think, even for a church as highly esteemed and influential as the church at Ephesus. I could point to any number of churches today that started well, but totally apostatized within 50 years' time. It it always happens whenever something other than love for Christ captivates a congregation. Now, back to Revelation 2, and listen to this letter that Christ sent to the church at Ephesus. Hopefully you feel some familiarity with that church. Verses 1 through 7 of Revelation 2. Christ is dictating this letter to the apostle John, and he says, "...to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, "...the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works." your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise, which is in the paradise of God. So now, let's break this down. All seven of Christ's letters to these churches are addressed to the angel of the church. That's how it's translated in every major English version. The Greek text does use the word from which our English word angel is derived, but the literal meaning of it is simply messenger. The messenger of the church, I think, would be the person who does the preaching. So basically, these letters are addressed, I believe, to the senior pastor. And that makes perfect sense, because his task is to preach the word. And Christ here is giving him an inspired text tailored directly to the needs of that church. And it's clear, by the way, that the content of all of these letters is meant for everyone in the church. Because at the end of each of the seven letters, you have the same statement you have in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's speaking to us. By the way, the fact that these letters are included in the canon is proof that there is truth in them for you and for me as well. They are profitable to us for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And that's why these seven letters, though they were addressed to specific churches, are important for us as well. 
There was much that this church, the Ephesian church, could be commended for. And Christ gives them a list of their strong points. They were hardworking. They persevered. They couldn't stomach evil people or false teachers. Verse 3, they didn't grow weary in well-doing when others might have. And skipping to verse 6, they literally hated this licentious heresy of the Nicolaitans that was apparently both pervasive and popular in that region, because these letters mention it more than once. And if that's all you knew about the church at Ephesus at the end of the first century, you might think this was the model of Christian faithfulness. You hear that description, and I think that's a church I'd like to belong to. They seem to have heeded Paul's warning to the elders about fierce wolves that would come in not sparing the flock. Maybe those who called themselves apostles and were not were the very men who arose from among their own presbytery, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. They took care of all that. They had received excellent counsel, not only from Paul, but also from the apostle John about what to do when false teachers came with doctrines that were foreign to what they had received. John said, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, he's talking about the same teaching you've heard from Paul and Timothy and the apostle John. If someone comes with a different religion, don't receive such a person into your house or give him any greeting. And the Ephesians seem to have heeded all those warnings. Unlike Most of these other churches, Jesus is writing to, the Ephesians had zero tolerance for false teachings. In fact, when I first read that list of commendable features in the church at Ephesus, I thought, that's very much like our church. It's exactly the kind of church many discernment-minded people on the internet say they're looking for. I hear about this from people all the time, looking for a church where False teaching isn't tolerated and all of that. But people complain all the time that it's hard to find churches like this where heresy isn't tolerated and self-appointed apostles and other evildoers are routinely excommunicated and people serve without complaint and they endure persecution patiently. Surely a church like that is a healthy church, right? They served They sacrificed, they were steadfast, they were separated, and they suffered for Christ's sake. They even alliterated their virtues. (laughs) And furthermore, this was a true church, according to every classic Reformed definition. They met and they excelled in every one of the three standard marks of a true church, the word, the sacraments, and discipline. But this was not a healthy church. Out of all seven letters from Christ to these churches, five of them containing rebukes of one kind or another, to me, verse 4 is the most troubling and heartbreaking words Jesus spoke to any of these churches. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You know, he tells the church at Laodicea that their lukewarmness makes him want to vomit. He tells the congregation at Sardis, they're dead. He rebukes some of the people in Thyatira for their tolerance of the evil woman whom he calls Jezebel. She called herself a prophetess, and she led people into acts of sexual immorality. To the church at Pergamum, he said if they didn't repent, he would come and wage war against them. The only threat he makes to Ephesus, verse 5, he will come and remove their lampstand from its place. But still, I think his lament about their failure in verse 4 is perhaps the most heart-rending sentence in these two chapters. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Because it's their love of Christ himself that he's talking about. These otherwise orthodox, seemingly stable, this fine-looking church had no real heart for Christ. They were going through the motions of piety and praxis. Their religion at the end of the day was reminiscent of the religion of the Pharisees, you know, gleaming white and spotless on the outside, but dead on the inside. You might not even have observed, if you had visited this church, that they were waning in their love for Christ, but Christ knew because he knows our hearts. And in fact, that's stressed repeatedly in his message to this church. I know your works, verse 2. I know you are enduring patiently, verse 3. He sees everything so he could see their works. He knows everything, including the secrets of our hearts. 
As it says in John 2.24, he knows all people and doesn't need anyone to bear witness about man because he himself knows what is in man. And so no one needed to tell him about the patient, unwavering tenacity in the hearts of these people. But he also knew they didn't love him the way they did at first. Although they were tenacious, when it came to enduring persecution, bearing up for his namesake, they were not so purposeful in their love for him, and and they had somehow let their hearts grow cold. Maybe it was the routine of their toil, or the tedium of remaining steadfast in the faith, or the vexation of having to deal with those who call themselves apostles and are not. All of that, while relentlessly summoning the strength to bear up under the strain of persecution. They had hated the works of the Nicolaitans, and Jesus himself says that's good. That's a good kind of hatred. But if we're not careful, even a legitimate, holy indignation like that can eclipse the love we need to cultivate. Whatever it was that had derailed the Ephesians... Their shrinking love for Christ was a serious spiritual setback, enough to nullify all the good things Christ had commended them for. Notice the severity of this threat, verse 5. Unless you repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, they would no longer be a true church at all. He would, in effect, excommunicate the entire congregation. And this, by the way, is not at all uncommon. Again, it often happens in 50 years' time or less. Churches apostatize all the time. There are, I would guess, fewer than 100 churches in the world today that have maintained their love for Christ, their commitment to the authority of Scripture, their zeal for the gospel, their faithfulness to sound doctrine for 350 years or longer. There aren't many churches that old that are still faithful. On the other hand... I could take you on a tour within a half-mile radius of right here, and I could show you dozens of churches, less than 75 years old, most of them, where the candlestick has been removed. The gospel is no longer preached. Their ministers are not qualified. They become social centers, not churches. All the good things Christ said about the church at Ephesus, all those good things that we would encourage, guard your doctrine, watch out for false teachers, all of that, none of it nullified the gross evil that underlay their dwindling love for Christ. Without love, Paul says, every other virtue is without any value whatsoever. 1 Corinthians 13, 2, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. And so, without true love for Christ, a person's profession of faith is totally meaningless. I said earlier that love for Christ is the very essence of true, saving faith. I didn't make that up. This is the Word of God. John eight forty two. If God were your Father, Jesus says, you would love me. 1 Corinthians sixteen twenty two. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Matthew 10, 37, Jesus said, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. When Peter denied Christ three times and Christ reached out to restore him, Jesus didn't ask Peter to make promises or take an oath or perform some work of penance. He simply asked him three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Here's a fact I find astonishing. When Paul closed his epistle to this church at Ephesus. He ended his letter with a one-sentence benediction. It's the last book, it's the last verse in the book of Ephesus, uh, Ephesians 6.24. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. That's, by the way, a synonym for believers, Christians. Paul calls them Those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Now think about this. If the Ephesians' love for Christ was incorruptible, how could it be slackening or diminishing? How could they lose it or leave it behind? And the answer for true believers in in that fellowship is that they couldn't actually lose or, or totally abandon their love for Christ. They wouldn't do that. That would be clean contrary to the very nature of faith. They'd have to abandon the faith completely. And if they did that, 
that would be proof that they never had any real love for Christ in the first place. 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But the warmth of our love for Christ can diminish. I think we all know that. The intensity of a believer's love can decline or be eclipsed by other things. And in this case, it may be that a passion for orthodoxy of all things gradually took precedence over their affection for Christ. That's a very real danger. And when that happens, what you are left with is a lifeless orthodoxy that can quickly turn into a kind of hateful unorthodoxy. Hundreds of spiritually dead or even empty and abandoned fundamentalist churches in America bear testimony to that. Is there a remedy when a church loses its love or leaves its love or its love for Christ is declined? Is there a remedy for that? Yes, there is. And it's very simple and clear right here. You can sum it up in three words. Verse 5, remember, repent, and return. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and return to doing the works you did at first. Remind yourself of where you were when you began with Christ. Rekindle that unbridled zeal that is so wonderfully common in new believers. It's a a true devotion to Christ, a deep gratitude for salvation from sin, an eagerness to serve the Savior, not to earn merit, but out of sheer thankfulness for the sacrifice He made. Remember how you felt and, and what you thought when you first saw the truth of the gospel and how it was all fresh and new and, and you came to know Christ for the first time in His glory. Remind yourself of the love He showed for you when He Himself bore your sins in His body on the tree so that by His wounds you could be healed. And if you truly fill your heart with those truths and keep them in mind the way you did at first, That'll rekindle the love that was starting to wane. But there's more. Verse 5. Repent. It's a sin not to love Christ the way we should. It's a sin we're all guilty of. It's actually the core problem in all of our sins, if you think about it. And it's the first thing most of us need to repent of. Like Peter in John 21, 17, we, we think to ourselves, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. But also, like Peter, we are rightly ashamed because we know that our love for Christ is not what it should be. It's a sin that we need to ponder and repent of daily. And third, verse 5, return and do the works you did at first. What are those first works? Well, if you were truly and soundly converted, then like the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9... You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. Just do that again. Purge your life of idols. Serve God. Live with the expectation that Christ could come at any moment. Fix your heart and your mind on that, and the chill that has has hindered your love for Christ will be reversed by a new warmth. Now, if you know me at all, you know how how strongly I believe pastors need to cultivate theological depth in themselves and in their flocks and in their preaching. I hate shallow preaching and shallow faith. I hate it. Biblical understanding and wise discernment and a willingness to defend the truth, these are all in short supply in the church today. And the Ephesians had had all of those things, but their love for Christ was being eclipsed perhaps even by their passion for those things. And if you can conceive, if you can concentrate on, on, on developing just one virtue, if, if you're like me and, you know, spiritually limited, so you kind of have to work on one flaw at a time, what we need to do is foster and fortify our love for Christ. Because if you have true love for Christ, true love for the true Christ, all those other things will fall into place. Jesus said, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. How do you identify a church that loves Christ? Well, it's easy. They preach Christ, not Hollywood. They worship Christ, not raw emotion. 
and not just doctrinal orthodoxy, but Christ is who they worship. Christ is the central subject of their songs and their sermons and their conversations and their testimonies. Love for Christ will show if it's real. It's obvious. It's, in fact, impossible to hide. And, in fact, if you have it, you won't try to hide it. Now, to you pastors, let me give you this closing word of encouragement. As I said earlier, if you shepherd a flock who genuinely love the true Christ, you're the pastor of a great congregation. But I think all of us would probably say we're, we're not there yet. We're not totally there yet. And especially in our generation, we live in a world that is teeming with idols and constantly assaulting us with countless distractions. And if you think it's hard for you, it's far worse for members of your flock who live and work in the secular world. Don't lose your focus on this one issue. Your people's love for Christ constantly needs the fuel and oxygen that you are charged with giving them when your flock comes together. Preach the word in season and out of season. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23, above all that means preach Christ. Preach Christ crucified. Preach the gospel of Christ. Preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Keep him always at the center of your message. Forget the movie reviews and the analysis of popular culture. Forget about all the gimmickry and topical nonsense church growth gurus say you have to use in order to arrest the interest of people. If anyone has no love for the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. The Lord is coming. Your job as a pastor is to proclaim Christ and to do it in such a way that the love of your people never grows cold. That's how you keep your lampstand in place. That's how you guard against cold mechanical orthodoxy. That's how you maintain the health of a church. And that's what you need to do as a pastor if you want to hear the Lord say, well done. Let's pray. Father, we confess that our love for Christ is not what it ought to be. So we pray, rekindle that flame and may it stay burning with profuse heat and perpetual light and may we be faithful, not only to the truth you've given us to proclaim, but above all, to the Lord whom we are committed to follow and to love. And in all that we do, whatever your will for us, may Christ be the focus of our lives and our testimony and the message that we preach. Oh, make us thine forever. And should we fainting be, Lord, may we never, never outlive our love for thee. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.